from NHC's Adams Place, home of premier senior living on Memorial Boulevard. It's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS, FM 100.5 and 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Well, when Bart asked you about doing a show, did he tell you that he would interrupt uh, regularly on Monday? No. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't part of the original deal. My, Monday's always our day. I mean, if anything's going to go wrong, it's going to be on Monday. Well, that's why I say you invite me on Monday to do the sound check. Yeah, and I appreciate that. <laughs> it has to be somebody that, that has a strong yeah. will about him. Well, uh, and what was your reaction when Bart first suggested that uh, you do a talk show? No. No. <laughs> I, I didn't want to do it. And, and uh, I wasn't a young person w w when we started. Uh, I was up in the retirement part of my life and ready to go and and uh, go down to the beach and enjoy walking for three or four hours a day. And Jackie and I, we, we really enjoyed those times. But uh, as I got to thinking about it, uh, we talked again. And, and uh, it's been very enjoyable because I, I knew you uh, well before we started the show. And I had a number of my friends on... Uh, along with you and uh, as we uh, as time went on I got to meet more and more interesting people and it was just um, it was almost like a um, it was one a blessing in in, in some ways and uh, all the people that I've met has been a, a great experience for me and thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, uh, made a lot of great friends during this time well, with hindsight, you made the right decision, but at the time, you were a little unsure about it, huh? Yeah, because, you know, uh, I had uh, places that we, 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 Jackie and I really enjoyed, especially going down uh, in the warm season down to Florida, and we enjoyed all the sights down there, and uh, we we made some nice travels during that time, and um, we, uh, it was a, a special time for us. And uh, bless her heart, she uh, I think she enjoyed every minute of it. Now, is, you're trying to take my place today, so you're asking the question. See, there's no dead air when you're a great host. You need, you, you need to be prepared to ask another question uh, before we have that particular dead air. Yeah. Being an attorney, it's easy for you. And I, I, I love, you know, when we're here by ourselves a lot of times, you go back to the old days when you were a practicing attorney in Washington and things like that. And I love the way you get in front of a mirror and start practicing, you know, how you need to look and how you're going to influence the uh, uh, jury and, and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, you, you really do a great job with that. Well, you do have to shave every morning <laughs> and put on put on the uniform, three-piece suit, vest, watch chain, you know, make the right impression. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody invited me to resume, <laughs> no way. <laughs> No way at all. Uh, to me, it wouldn't be a fun job. Well. Uh, but you, when you win a big, big case and do it for the firm and all of that other stuff, you kind of stick your chest out a little bit, don't you? Well, anybody 
or any professional or any artisan or any uh, skilled. If you do your job and it turns out well, you're proud of it. Yeah. Sure are. Uh, I don't know why you make me think of this. <laughs> Yesterday I visited over in my son's place to see the uh, the granddaughter had some new little chicks we were looking at. And my son says, hey, you want to go for a ride? You hadn't been for a ride yet in the uh, Porsche, his new turbo whatever. And uh, it wasn't on my list of things I just got to do, but I knew he wanted to show off a little bit. So I mm -hmm. said, oh, okay. So we go over and open the door, and he has to grab me by the elbow so I can get down on the pavement practically mm. to get into the thing. Mm. Yeah. And then it's not like getting into a car. It's like putting on the car. You know, you got your place to slip your legs in and all. So I got into it, and uh, we started out to drive and turned, and uh, Cripple Creek has uh, got some curves in it. But they're right by my hay field, or soybean field now. Is a good long straightaway. He hit that straightaway and punched that thing, and I felt G forces. Mm. Uh, and uh, we, in that short time, it was about four, three seconds, four seconds. We almost hit a hundred. And uh, I commented. Wait a minute. What's what's the color of, of his uh, Porsche? Because uh, a lot of people don't recognize. A Porsche in this area because most people can't afford one to start with and uh, I was wondering that maybe uh, I might call the, the sheriff's office and maybe let them go out there and maybe they can double-check how fast that car is going. First thing they ought to check is the noise ordinance because that <laughs> thing roars. That thing roars. Well, you know, I bite, bite my lip and hold on and uh, then we hit the curvy places. Well, when I commented on the acceleration, he said there's only four or five cars made that can accelerate beyond this 911. I said, oh, okay, that's fine. Don't need to demonstrate it. Uh, and then we hit the curvy part, and I commented that, well, it it holds down on the road pretty good, too, swinging around there. Did you change clothes after you took that yeah, ride? Yeah, well, we, we got back, and I had to hands down on the pavement to get out of the thing. Uh, and, uh, Ask Haven if uh, Bud Mitchell can take it for a spin well, over yeah, there. Yeah, he, he needs to take it by Bud. Let Bud, <laughs> let Bud see it. I had an uncle, Uncle, uncle Roger. He uh, he had a Porsche. He said it was the best car ever made. He said he just absolutely, he drove it all the way from uh, North Carolina over to our house. Just absolutely loved it. Well, he had an Aunt Mary. Well, I had a half a Porsche. I had a 914 as a, I guess I was in my 20s when I got it. And uh, I tried giving it to one son uh, years, no, it was probably in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And he ran it for a while and gave it back to me because he couldn't afford to keep it up. So it sat in the garage. And uh, my other son, the one that's now got the Porsche, he got in it one day and was playing and pulled up the handbrake and left it up. So a year later, I tried to get it out, and all that was frozen. All that had locked in. And uh, so I gave it to that boy do what he wanted with it, and he ended up taking it apart and selling off pieces, if I remember right. So that was my, my Porsche. Didn't quite act like the 
the real Porsche, though. 914 was a, a Volkswagen, big Volkswagen, a 1500 engine in a little bitty two-passenger car. I had a lot of fun with it, but it didn't hold up all like you'd hope it would. But it, it was not like the, the little bugs and anything like that. No, it was very much, looked like a Porsche. But the what year was that one? 71, 1971. Wow. They had a 914.4, which is all I could afford, and then there was a 914.6. And if I had hocked everything else and gotten that 6, I would have ended up with a real collector's car. Mm -hmm. They fight over those now. But the 914.4 was too much too much the other identity, too much of a Volkswagen to inflame the... Uh, how how old were you at the time? 28, maybe. Something like yeah. that. <laughs> Only car I ever bought on a finance plan. Yeah. And it took five years to pay it off. Uh, but Isn't it fun w when you're young to be able to experience that type of excitement? I know I had a, a an old 63 Corvette, and... Uh, it, it it wasn't be it wasn't made to be driven on the type of roads that we have around here. I mean, it, it, if you go up to go into Germany and and get to drive on their particular type of interstate, it, it, oh man, I I can't even imagine. Well, it used to be Montana had uh, unlimited speed on uh, some of their thoroughfares, but if you ever had any engine trouble. Back then, you were in trouble because there was nobody, just long stretches of, of highway. But let's see, driving in today, I think I heard on the radio that it is uh, International Women's Day or something like that. And that reminded me of a... International uh, Women's Day? I've never heard of that. Well, I hadn't heard I of it. I thought every day was International it's Women's sure. Day. It is as a practical matter, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Uh, but I thought of two ladies that uh, really exemplify the, uh, what would you say, the, the upper end, the, the high society, Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, Mr. Craddock, which was the pen name of one of the Murphy girls, Mary mm -hmm. Noy Murphy, a uh, authoress. Uh, of note back in her time. Wait a minute, it's all authors now. Well, the, she was back in the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. I think she died about 1930. Yeah. If you go to the history section of uh, the Lineball Library, there must be 20 volumes that she did, all uh, what I would call uh, uh, romantic type novels, mm -hmm. but set in the setting of Tennessee. Yeah, we were made to read at least one when I was in school. Yeah, you yeah. should have been. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the Craddock Society, picking up her pen name at the high school, was uh, very popular back in the 1920s. If you mm -hmm. get the early high school annuals, you'll see the Craddock Society, which is kind of a literary uh, society. But she had a sister, and the sister was, of course, not as prominent as, as Mary was. sister's name was Fanny. F-A-N-N-Y, a popular name back then. You don't see much now. Nobody wants that name anymore. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Actually, if you listen to it, uh, it flows. It's kind of a pretty, pretty name. 
but after her sister died, which was, I believe, early 1930s, maybe 1930, uh, Fanny, and I'm this is some speculation, I'm reading into what I find reading some of her writings, apparently was concerned or offended by the uh, mythology arising around Murphy and others, prominent names in the, in the community. And she set about writing a detailed history of her ancestor, Colonel Hardy Murphy. It ran in several chapters or sequels in uh, one of the newspapers in the 30s. Mm -hmm. And uh, she did not address head on some of the myths, but by omission in a detailed history of Hardy Murphy. Uh, she makes clear that uh, you know, there was not, in her opinion, substance to a lot of the stories, such as the story of the naming of Murfreesboro uh, and things like that. Uh, I believe it was ultimately, after she had done every installment, it was published in a little pamphlet, which is also, I think, available over at Lion Ball, and it's available online if uh, anyone wants to read through it. But a curious... Uh, trivia about the two girls. Well, a couple of things. Uh, how do they come to be called last name Murphy? And neither one of them ever married. Mm -hmm. uh, but their names were Mary Murphy and Fanny Murphy because they were descendants of the uh, family that had the Grantlands plantation. And we talked about it recently. That was the largest estate established by Hardy Murphy's will, mm -hmm. which his will involved so much property, so much money that it had to go through the legislature eventually for probate. But he left a thousand acres just north of what became Murfreesboro to one daughter who had married a fellow named Dickinson. So the family name for the plantation, which was called Grantlands, and it mm -hmm. was just immediately to the north of the Oak, Oaklands plantation that went to another daughter. But the family name was Dickinson. And Mary and Fanny are direct descendants of the Dickinsons. And I thought, now wait a minute. How could their last name be Murphy if they're descended from the Dickinsons and their great-great-great-great-grandmother was a Murphy? Mm -hmm. But it got... And uh, so I went back into the genealogy and looked at it. And as you might expect their mother married her cousin and the cousin was a name line descendant of Murphy mm -hmm. and of course there still are uh, my friends in uh, the area that are direct name line descendants uh, so the mother of Mary and Fanny married her cousin and brought the Murphy name back into the Dickinson line so the two girls as daughters uh and descendants of the Dickinsons. Uh, again, we're back uh, with the Murphy name. Uh, they were socially conscious, apparently. And again, I'm speculating a little based on what facts we have. But uh, they apparently decided that the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist or the, or the local Methodists were not quite the class that they wanted to be associated with. So they were founders, along with a few others, 
of the Episcopal Church, which is, uh, in the old terminology, one of the high hierarchy-type churches. Mm -hmm. And uh, they established the first Episcopal congregation and uh, either financed or, or somehow got property on Spring Street, Spring Street uh, North. And it's only about a third of a block north of Main Street, mm -hmm. uh, close to where the old Elks Club used to be, right in there. Uh, in fact, it may even be on the property. Uh, and they had a small kind of a one-room uh, facility there that was where the initial small congregation uh, met. Uh, but the congregation grew, and also they wanted to upgrade and the decision was made to uh, acquire the corner there of Academy in East Main, uh, where the Episcopal Church is today, and to move uh, into an initial facility that was being built there uh, or around there. Mm -hmm. And uh, they decided to actually move the facility they had and use it as part of the expanded church. Uh, the building was, even back then, uh, j they could jack up the building, and they'd use logs as rollers and roll the building out into the street and then around the corner up the street. And uh, they'd roll the building forward with mules or others pulling it, maybe a few oxen. And then the backlog, as it came out from under, would be carried around and put back in the front mm -hmm. and roll further forward. So they rolled their church building about a block up East Main and onto the corner up there. So I think it'd be fair to say that the uh, Murphy girls uh, and the Episcopal Church were the first holy rollers in Murfreesboro. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> God, I was wondering where in the world we were going. Uh, the facts are correct, yeah. but uh, it's fun to put a little bit of motivation well, tell me, in there. Why do they consider it being more of a socially elite group to be Episcopal? Because it seems like that was the direction that, that we were going. It, I, I'm, uh, I, I am not fascinated by the people who are looking to be a, uh, a social level above others at the time. Okay. Yeah. I think you're entitled to that. Thank you very much. Attitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For some people, that's that's important. Yeah, uh, I guess so. Yeah. And it's fun to look back at some of the personalities that have been part of our community over the many years. Another one that uh, leaves a little mystery about it, just what was going on, was Jesse Beasley. That's uh, Be Beasley with two E's. Mm -hmm. Beasley. Yeah. Uh, we know it today because there is a Beasley Foundation, yeah. which from time to time does fundraisers and uh, helps support the Beasley Clinic, mm -hmm. which is a spay and uh, neuter clinic for animals. Originally started out as more of an animal shelter and welfare, uh, and it is named for Jesse Beasley. Jesse, back in the 1900s, uh, was the son of a very prominent and affluent family, 
His father was one of the owners of the first electric company in Murfreesboro. Had a steam plant in near the downtown area and provided mm -hmm. electricity. His father was also a bank officer uh, at one of the banks. And uh, Jesse, after his school years in Murfreesboro, went to Princeton. Mm. Says something about the resources the family had. He uh, graduated from Princeton, and I think he can get a master's degree in archaeology. Now, why archaeology? And what did he do with the archaeology degree? He came back to Murfreesboro and uh, bought a newspaper. Back then, there were two newspapers, the Home Journal, and I think the other one, the one he bought was called the News Banner originally. And uh, he admitted many years later that uh, he bought the newspaper with his daddy's money. Mm. So he and his father were partners. And the uh, motive, C.C. Uh, Henderson, who had founded the paper, was at the point of retirement. And uh, they bought the paper and made it into Murfreesboro's first daily newspaper. It was called the Daily News Banner. Mm -hmm. Somewhere around 1926, 27, 28, and you know what happened. The Black Tuesday, the uh, Depression began with the crash. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesse, years later, when asked about it, said that it uh, wiped out not only me, but my father as well, financially. And the paper failed after just a couple of years. And uh, the paper was bought out. What was left of it, the uh, uh, files and such, were bought uh, by the competing newspaper, the uh, uh, one owned by A.L. Todd. So A.L. Todd mm -hmm. merged his paper, the Home Journal, with the news banner and became the Daily News Journal, 1931. Uh, Jesse, though, uh, pursued a publishing career, went back to the Northeast, and for a while was, let me check here in notes, be sure. Uh, oh, it's interesting, he did, just before the crash, finance uh, Mr. Henderson, who was the, I mentioned was the first editor of the paper, uh, financed a uh, book by C.C. Henderson, 1929, The Story of Murfreesboro, which I refer to frequently uh, and is an excellent source to anybody interested in Murfreesboro history. But C.C. Henderson says at the first that uh, he's printing both uh, the folklore and the legends as well as, as the facts to the extent he can, he can uncover them. Uh, but he went back to New York and was an editor for Prentice Hall and as a hobby, he started doing sculpturing. And maybe that relates to an archaeology degree somehow. But he began doing human figures, making bronze casting just as a, as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And his tax accountant saw his work and uh, purchased uh, one of his works, which prompted Jesse to think, hey, you know, this may be where the money is. And he apparently had some real talent. And he also specialized in... Uh, sculpted figures of children mm -hmm. and uh, dealing with a clientele where the affluent parents would pay him to do something of, of their children. Uh, <clears throat> he uh, 
came back to Murfreesboro and lived until 1980. But in the 1970s, he was instrumental in forming what became this Beasley Clinic that we know, know yeah. of today. And uh, apparently, on a uh, contemporary basis, helped with the financing and such. And he wrote his will in such a way that it would fund, significantly fund, the Beasley Foundation uh, on his death. Mm -hmm. uh, he left the area, died in 1980, and then it was discovered after his death that he made a second will. And if you, as you would expect, if you make a second or a later will, mm -hmm. it always cancels out the first one. Yeah. And his later will did not leave anything to the Beasley Foundation. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, I talked, that was a couple of years ago, but I talked with uh, people who run the program now, and they said no, they don't recall any subsidy, any funding out of the will at all. So it's interesting that he, uh, and you wonder why, again, can you get inside someone's head on something like that at some point? He had a different uh, attitude about the project you know, that he had helped form and start and uh, changed his will. Now, usually, don't they put the reasons why they make those changes? Because uh, I can, I can, uh, I know I've seen a number of them, and I remember the lady that uh, ran it for a long time. Uh, uh, the the Beasley, Beasley Animal Clinic, or how however what was the proper name for it, but um, um, she would bring. I, I think the uh, uh, Rutherford County would actually help fund that back during those days when it when it became, I guess, to that point where it was no longer being funded. Well, uh, I know my cousin uh, Pinkerton. Larry Pinkerton mm -hmm. uh, has performed several times at fundraisers for Beasley, and mm -hmm. we've supported it. Uh, don't use it that much, but uh, I think it's a good program. Yeah. And uh, it is pretty solid, too, pretty sound. Of course, they now, I think originally it was more of a charity operation. Now they charge for their services, uh, but it's uh, uh, run as a nonprofit, so it's reasonable if. Maybe not the cheapest, but it's reasonable. Yeah. It serves an important purpose. Uh, it's very popular in the 80s, if I if I remember correctly. Well, that would have been shortly after his death. Yeah. yeah. First first decade. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come upon this? What what uh, drew your attention to the Beasley type situation? Uh, well, it really wasn't the clinic. It was uh, doing newspaper research mm -hmm. and finding that uh, the Beasley of the Daily News banner uh, was the same family. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also intriguing that uh, things we take for granted are public utilities now, but the uh, original several of the early sources of electricity were privately owned, private yeah. ventures uh, in this area and all over the state for that matter. They, it's not hard to find interesting subjects from Rutherford County, is it? No. Because we've been blessed in this area. I, I think it's one of the reasons that it was so attractive early on. You you have people here who, 
And a lot of them, believe it or not, and it's hard for me to understand it compared to today's world, is the ones that get into newspaper business because it's it's entirely different. It's like we don't even have a newspaper here simply because it's not a local newspaper anymore. And what you see in, in the paper uh, really has no impact at all on, on the community here. The contrast is, as you say, striking. Uh, if you go back and look at the two newspapers competing aggressively back in the 30s and mm -hmm. 40s, and uh, the papers are filled with international news, local news, uh, local gossip. Each one of the communities would have its own little uh, column, you mm -hmm. know, run once, twice a month. Uh, and. Uh, the newspapers really serve as a historic record of what's going on in the community. And I, I enjoy uh, the Rutherford Courier. I would say in the 30s was professionally probably the, the better paper in terms of local news, local coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, fortunately we have from about 1930, 31, when the two papers were formed, we have a complete record. Uh, available through the library or the archives mm -hmm. uh, of those papers uh, on up until Rutherford Curry, of course, disappeared, what, in the 70s, if it went that far. Yeah. And uh, people will argue with us, but I think you and I agree that the uh, Daily News Journal has pretty much disappeared as yeah. a, local, a local record. Uh, you have to have a connection with... Uh, the people that you serve when you're in the newspaper business. And if you don't, um, people see that quite readily, and they want to know what's going on in their community. They have other areas that they can go to to find out all the national and statewide news and things like that. But people really want to know what's going on in their whole community where they live. I think so. Uh, remembering Jesse Beasley and his sculpting his artwork reminded me of another uh, unfortunately uh, almost forgotten uh, artist from this area from Smyrna name was Gregory Ridley uh, and uh, he was raised by his own description uh, dirt poor mm -hmm. uh, a uh, black family with a handful of kids uh, but they got by and uh, he remembers that we never really were needing anything, but what we had was, was very simple, as you would expect. But uh, he was always interested in art, and when he uh, was of age, he joined the Navy, mm -hmm. World War II, served in the Navy. After uh, coming home from the Navy, from his or service, military service. He used the GI Bill. And uh, where did he go to school? Let's see if we can spot that. Uh, he went to the uh, University of Louisville mm. uh, and got a master's degree. His undergraduate was Tennessee State. And he got a master's degree in 1955. And he became a professor of art and uh, had positions around the southeast and settled into as a professor of art at Fisk University. What's interesting when you read his history is never does he 
make any indication of concerns about discrimination. Mm -hmm. Seems that what he wanted to do, he did it. Yeah. He wanted to uh, serve in the Navy. He joined the Navy, didn't wait to be drafted. He wanted to go to a good school of art, mm -hmm. ended up at the University of Louisville, uh, came back and, and taught, and I was a professor of art. He never mentions discrimination, and he never mentions what we would call affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you know, that, that was his ambition, and he decided to pursue it, and he achieved it. Uh, if you're interested in uh, his work, well, his name is interesting, too, because Brumfield Ridley was one of the most prominent names in the Smyrna area uh, in the period of the Civil War mm -hmm. and such and a big landowner family. So very likely, uh, Greg Ridley would trace his family connections back to uh, that family mm -hmm. and those land holdings. Uh, but he was particularly uh, fond of working in metal, where you're bending and shaping the, the metal. And I can imagine seeing him with what we would call a chisel or something and a hammer tapping on uh, copper sheeting and mm -hmm. doing uh, what uh, someone described as a rhythmic narrative because he would do several and it'd be like uh, the frieze on the old Greek temples you know you'd have a story running all the way around with, you know pictures and such mm -hmm. and uh, he did 80 hammered copper frieze panels uh, which he called the story of Nashville beginning with the very earliest origins of Nashville and uh, coming all the way up to uh, his contemporary time at the time, which had been uh, about 1980. Uh, and if you're interested in seeing, the public library in Nashville has what they call a great hall or a great reading room. Mm -hmm. And there is a frieze, a, uh, a sequence of these copper etchings goes all the way around the room, all the way around the room with the story of Nashville. Hmm. And I wonder, you know, how many people stop to look at it and understand what it is, but how many of them realize that this is a, uh, a uh, Smyrna native raised uh, in, uh, he even talks about the dust and the dirt of uh, the area that mm -hmm. his family lived in and worked in. Uh, who had an ambition and, and succeeded in it uh, by just pursuing it. Yeah. And ends up with uh, a very impressive uh, series of uh, art depictions in metal in uh, the great room of the Nashville Public Library. Isn't it funny how people seem to be more creative when they grow up uh, having to pretty much um, work their way through more things. Like if someone is born uh, uh, with plenty of uh, money and things like that and they have all the, a lot of the opportunities given to them, it, it seems like you understand things a whole lot more when you really have to dig in work and, and work for it. And, and I, I and the farm 
are the, the best place in the world to grow up as far as I'm concerned because you see all the responsibilities and all the things that you have to create yourself to make life better. Well, in the, in the period we're talking about, uh, everybody on the farm had to work. Uh, yeah. And everybody had, you know, because you are surviving on your own work there. Yeah. And yes, that's true today, even if you're a wage earner somewhere, but you're very close to it on the farm. And if you're not able, now fortunately, I've heard many stories of someone for health reasons or an accident or something like that, and the neighbors pitch in. And I know out in my community, I've heard a number of stories about, well, and so and so fell off the roof of the barn, broke his leg. We all, mm -hmm. you know, came in and helped finish the work, or whatever it may be. So you could depend on your neighbors in most cases. But it all began with, you know, what what can I do for myself? Yeah. And uh, You have the freedom of choice to do those things. And you don't have people constantly trying to tell you how you're supposed to run your life. And... That's, I think that's the thing that's bothered me the most uh, over the last 10 years or so. We seem to be going in a different direction, and people are not able to utilize their God-given talents to take it to another level. Well, when I start thinking and looking around at artists, we've had quite a few artists come from Rutherford County, mm -hmm. including, I would say, my father. He was an architect but he did his art through the buildings and design yeah. of the buildings. And uh, he was fortunate enough to have a, a, originally an assistant and eventually a partner who took over the firm. His name was David Klein, K-L-I-N-E. And uh, David was killed in a car accident maybe four or five years ago. I lose track, but he was originally from Nashville. But... Uh, uh, following in my father's, he was my father's partner when my father died, and he mm -hmm. took over the firm. And uh, following my father's work in Rutherford County, he became, uh, David, became the uh, architect for the courthouse and for the mm -hmm. county, did a lot of that work. Uh, and uh, But I have another David Klein who also I think of as an artist who had a very interesting story, and he was a native of Rutherford County. Uh, he, uh, as a young teenager, his parents divorced, and his father moved to Illinois, and David went with his father to Illinois, and his mother moved to North Carolina. Well, David didn't get along with the, the new family, the new mother, a stepmother in Illinois. So he was sent to North Carolina and went in school in North Carolina, lived with his mother. He didn't get along with going to school. He dropped out of school and ran away. And the mother assumed that he had gone back to the father in Illinois. The father in Illinois assumed that he had was still in North Carolina. He made his way by thumb back to Rutherford County. Mm and essentially homeless in Rutherford County. Uh, but he had already begun to develop uh, what we call construction skills and such. But he needed a place to, to hang out. 
-hmm. And uh, at the time, the pastime barbershop run by Mr. Lovern. Norris Lovern, yeah. bless his heart. And David started hanging out there and would run errands and clean up and sweep and do whatever and make a few dollars. And anytime he could, play a little pool with anybody who was who was willing to play. And uh, began to make a few dollars here and there by betting on his own uh, game in the pool hall. He wasn't playing Norris. <laughs> no. Uh, well, over time. Uh, but at the end of the day, when Norris closed up, mm -hmm. uh, David was homeless on the street. Oh. So one day he hung around until everybody had cleared. He went around to the back of the building off the alley, pried open a door, and went in under the building. Over time, he cut into the uh, wiring that was under the building and hooked up his uh, light and a little uh, hot plate. He drug in an old discarded mattress, and he lived under the pool hall for a year or so. You don't think they ever knew that he was doing that? He might have been there because every morning he'd show up, yeah, and, you know, and and be the handyman, yeah, and do all the repairs and the work of that sort. And after about a year, he's out on the square during the day one time. He runs into his father, and of course neither one knew the other. The father had apparently decided to move back to Rutherford County, yeah, and was back in the area. So he came across his father. And then he gave up his under the under the building. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Norris probably knew what was going on. I bet. Being tolerant of it. Uh, but he still, every day, would be, you know, that was his place. He would show up when they opened and spend the day mm -hmm. doing whatever needed to be done and playing from time to time. Talking to him, he remembered that uh, uh, the pool hall was officially segregated had a sign up and they had one table in the back reserved for the black players mm. and then the rest of the tables towards the front. I don't remember that. For the white players. This might have been before our, before your time. Yeah. Uh, but David said, uh, uh, you played whoever was willing to pay. You know, so there was a lot of crossover. I think it was, what, 10 cents a game, I believe. Uh, 10 cents a cue. Yeah. So however <laughs> many guys you had in there. Yeah. And uh, David said uh, if there was somebody that he wanted to challenge or wanted to challenge him, they played on whatever table was open. So the Sounded like he had had plenty of uh, of work before they went. he started the games. Because oh, yeah. uh, Well, uh, over time, David got to be very much a, a shark. And uh, also very, very skilled in... Uh, the trades, the construction trades, worked mm -hmm. for me quite a bit. It's the reason I get get the story. Could do anything <clears throat> except get along with other people. Yeah. So uh, he always worked <laughs> best when it was just him or somebody he was ordering around. Yeah. Uh, but always very gentle with dealing with my wife, my kids. He loved kids, and uh, did, just did an awful lot of work for me. And I was always impressed how whatever it was. He had done it before, whether it was tree wow. trimming or plumbing or electrical or what have you. You knew how to do it. Uh, but <clears throat> he pursued his his uh, pool playing, billiards, whatever you want to call it. He had in the back of his uh, truck or in behind the seat a really expensive-looking 
screw together poodle cue. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, there was back, uh, no, this would have been in the 90s, 1990s, occasionally a big time tournament in Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and David entered the tournaments most of the time. One time I remember him seeing me doing some work and smiling about it. And I said, well, how'd you do it? And he says, well, I finished third. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good. He says, yeah, but uh, the winner was the national women's champion. And the uh, fellow who came in second uh, had been out in Hollywood and did all the uh, pool work for The Color of Money, yeah. the movie. Yeah. Uh, and David came in third. <laughs> so he was he was playing some pretty high cotton. Uh, we got a caller on. All right, let's see what the caller has. Caller, welcome aboard with Greg Tucker. I bet, I bet you all wondering, if, is it anything that I don't know about? You all really trace the nerve. Do you all know Liam Campbell? Did you all know him? I I know the name, but I can't play the nerve with me because he he took care of me as a son. George George was it George Higner? Did you all know him? No, you still got me, Casey. I hate to use this word, integration. But yeah. when I was a little boy, we would go uptown, and I didn't like, they, they always called it the slide. Y'all know what I'm talking about now? You talking about mink slide? Mink slide. And that, yeah. I, we moved to Mother's Brother Smyrna, and I, I, got a, I didn't like that area for some reason because it was a bad area when we moved to Mother's Brother back in the early 60s. It was whiskey going. They had a pool room down there, and they were selling whiskey and doing bad stuff. So I didn't hang out down there. And I, they had pastime. I told my friends, I said, next Saturday, we're going up there. And I got got my friends together. We went up there and hung around, and we started shooting pool. And within two months, I began to actually help Liam Campbell out. And he's treated me like a son. Did y'all yeah. know any of these gentlemen, George and and Mr. North Loving and his father was working that end. All these gentlemen, they treated me just like their son. I never will forget it. Pastime pool room. Those were special times, Casey. Yes, sir. I, I, I'm, I'm talking to you all that I never will forget it. They took care of me. Yeah. But when we moved to Mothersboro, that's where we. And, and you know what? I hate to use this word. But it means this is this is this is history. I integrated pastime because when I first went up there, you know, it was always this this a white and black issue. And when I started helping Liam Campbell rack pool tables, this white gentleman from MTSU, we became friends. And you know, we had noticed. But I said, he said, why don't we play a game of pool, Casey? Nobody mm -hmm. had ever played a game of pool, white and black, before. I said, we hadn't noticed it. I said, I asked Campbell. He said, yes. So we played, I played the first game of pool. I was the first one that went to Critchlow School. Had to, I was quarterback there. There's so much stuff we done. We looked at it. We were young. We thought it was natural because a lot of my white friends right there on Walnut Street. I lived on Poplar Street. But we we didn't even look at these things until you know it's it's funny uh, we were kids and we loved one another but we didn't realize what was going on. Y'all feel me? 
Yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about, Casey. It, it, it just, it just. Thank God we got away from the old days. You know yep. what I mean? I and, agree. And and we're still friends. When I, I, I just wonder whatever happened to live and all the, but Mr. North Loving and all those gentlemen took care of me when I was yeah. a child. Y'all, y'all feel me? Oh, I know exactly. I knew Norris for many, many years. Yeah, that's right. I remember, like I said, when I first went up there and started helping them out racking pool, and I even yeah. shined shoes up there in the body shop. But y'all touched on me. Y'all really touched me this morning. Because they carried me back some, some years, and I never will forget those days because we had some good days up there. And y'all were talking about, the, oh, man, y'all, y'all really touched me today. That, yeah, that those I, were the days I'll never forget. I'm with you, 100. percent Yes, sir. I never forget those days at the Paradise Pool Hall. Yep. I'm missing, gentlemen. Thank y'all for a good day. I appreciate it, Casey. Thank you, Casey. Are we still on? <laughs> I think I'm getting spam on my telephone. Picking South Carolina. I never heard of it. Uh, gypsy country. Yeah. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> You know, I, I love to get those phone calls that uh, have all good things t- to say. I, I just absolutely, uh, well, I live for those days. And it's quite satisfying to trigger someone else's memory and yeah. nostalgia. Because uh, I think we all appreciate that. Yeah. And I read recently in the Wall Street Journal that nostalgia is healthy. That that should be encouraged. So. And people... Uh, I think what Casey's saying falls into most of us. I think most of us remember those days with special fondness. And and when you grow up, this area right here did not have a lot of the very negative things that were going in uh, across our country uh, during that, what, 60s and 70s. It, It seemed like they were trying to pull everybody apart. And I know they were things that were going on that weren't right at the time. But, uh, you know, we have a way of, of being together rather than trying to drive. I was uh, uh, reading something the other day, and I went to sleep, and I woke up, and it was uh, on television, and it was these people, ladies, it was all ladies, they were saying some of the worst stuff I have ever heard in my life. It was full of hatred. And then I, I saw what it was. It was on Channel 5, so I said, the heck with this. There's there's no reason for that type of attitude and that type of uh, uh, downing people, how they thought or whatever. You know, it's, it's just... Um, well, Casey's nostalgia recollection yeah. parallel David Klein's that we were talking about. And there's a whole lot more story to David. Uh he uh, helped uh, the evolution of the poker machines. We'll talk about that maybe next week. But after he and his father were living together again, David still was working at the pool hall or hanging around there all day. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, towards the end of the day, his father would call uh, Norris mm-hmm. and say, send that boy home. I need him <laughs> at home. Send that boy home. And Lovern would turn around and holler, home, boy. And uh, you know what his nickname was from then on, Homeboy. In fact, I hope there's some people out there that remember Homeboy. 
because that's what uh, we called him when he worked with us. He's homeboy. You know, Norris was one of the more interesting characters I have ever met in my life. And he loved kids. He 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 uh, did a lot of baseball coaching back in those days and, and made a, a ton of friends. And he would do things for kids who maybe didn't have a whole lot. And he would always reach out to them, take them to uh, baseball games, major league games, uh, the Nashville Vol games. It was just... Uh, it, it was special times, and and I I tell my boys, I said, you, I wish you had grown up in the era that I grew up in because I, I think it was the golden times for our country. You know, it was after World War II and, uh, that a lot of us were born, or some of us born just before that, and it, it wasn't an easy life. But it, it was something where we respected each other. And that, I think that's what really makes our country strong. And we need to continue that. that there's too much negativity going on right now. But I, I am blessed to be able to be on this show with so many very bright people like you. Uh, I hate to give you that type of compliment, but... Um, you're holding up a sign right now. Aren't you going to say something nice of, about me? I appreciate that. I yeah, really I, do. I made that this morning knowing that you'd be <laughs> all over me. You know, I, you deserve what I just said, though, because I remember when you came in my office years ago and you were saying, what do you think about metropolitan Rutherford County? I said, what are you talking about? And you 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 kind of it was like you had a hook in my mouth and you were drawing me in the whole time and I still remember that just like it was yesterday. Uh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago, wasn't yeah, it? I was going to say that was like two two thousand five, so we're talking sixteen years ago. It's been a while, hasn't it? And we still are are aren't quite there with consolidation. Um. Uh, It'll never happen in Rutherford County. Uh, it, it'll be a different Rutherford County just before and after both. The if first thing, I think the first step in going to a metropolitan government, if I remember correctly, it would be the consolidation of school system. Yeah, and from then on, it, it kind of falls. Yeah, that's, uh, our system is a historic aberration anyway. You know, it, it made a lot of sense back in the 1890s and on up for a number of years. Yeah. But the separate systems now just really are an anomaly. This is left over from yeah. earlier times. Uh, and I think that probably will happen. It'll probably be forced by financial considerations. Uh, but that would be a first step, but it wouldn't guarantee that we would go any further. No. Well, you, you've got uh, Smyrna's a strong city. Laverne is doing well. Murfreesboro, of course, is very strong. So uh, I predict that Eagleville will be the next big town in Rutherford County if everything falls in place with the sewer system, the water system, and all those things that you have to have. Eagleville. Well, that reminds me of Henry Clark, but we're going to save that story for next week. Henry Clark? Yeah. Is he related to the person who would do all the well digging? Herman. Herman, yes. May have been. May have been, but that's not part of the my favorite story. Oh. 
That was back when coal was the black gold of the uh, industry. Everything yeah. ran on coal, and uh, Henry was shrewd about it. I would have loved to have had coal during this last ice storm, <laughs> I guarantee you. I, I, I've have never you gotten your electric bill for that. Period? I was going to say that. Yeah. Um, that ruined all my vacation <laughs> trips coming up. I, I like it warm now. I, I'm one of these people. I had it set on uh, 72 degrees. At night, I'd go down to 68. But in 72, I can't stand it any colder than that. Yeah. Well, that's pretty standard. But, yeah. Uh, uh, the billing for the last four weeks. I'm sure Three times what my normal bill yeah, would be. I was going to say it was staggering. I'm not going Yeah, that's about right. About yeah. three times. Yeah. All right. We've got to wrap up the show. Or, or did you want to say hey or bye or whatever to anybody? Hey and bye to everybody. All right, guys. We'll see you in the morning at 9 o'clock. From NHC's Adams Place, home of premier senior living on Memorial Boulevard. It's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS, FM 100.5 and 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming at WGNSradio.com.